Hello to all you listeners all around the world. Welcome to MB Medical's Hot Topics podcast. It is the 7th of February 2020. My name is Neil Tucker and it's been three weeks since the last podcast. I've been busy ferreting away on the Hot Topics book. That's now all signed, sealed and delivered. And of course, since I last spoke to you, there has been a global emergency declared due to coronavirus. So this has been the biggest news over the last few weeks. So we're going to have a look at coronavirus in more detail in our in-depth section today. I don't want to bore you too much with the things that you've seen in the news, in the media. I'm going to have a little look at some of the things that perhaps have not been so widely covered, some of the things that we might be interested in and need to know as scientists as well as medics. We're going to have a look at some new research on isolated diastolic hypertension. We're going to have a look at some research on the benefits or otherwise to our immunity by having exposure to childhood chickenpox as adults. But first, let's have a look at the news and parking coronavirus to one side for a minute. We'll come back there, don't you worry. The two big news stories for me over the last week was the publication of this independent inquiry about Ian Patterson, the disgraced and jailed surgeon. And then the other big news from yesterday, of course, is the new GP contract which is, of course, particularly important after the debacle of the um, proposed PCN service specifications that uh, had everyone wanting to just lay down their arms and quit, uh, quit the profession. So Ian Patterson, disgraced ex-breast surgeon from Solihull, already in jail for 20 years, uh, thanks to 17 counts of wounding with intent. This man spent years and years fabricating illness to uh, perform unnecessary operations on women. And whilst he's been jailed for 17 counts, he's had 11,000 cases over the years, which they're now going to go back and have a look at. And um, I have no doubt that the actual immensity of his crimes have been much, much greater. The independent inquiry found that there was this culture of avoidance and denial. and both patients and staff members feeling unable to challenge this guy at the top of the food chain. And I can see how this easily happens. I could even see it easily happening in general practice. I really hope that within our practice teams, people feel able to discuss more broadly about any problems and issues that come up in day-to-day practice, but that takes good leadership and management to instill that concept within a within a team. It's easy to instill uh, the concept of fear and isolation if that's what someone really wants to wants to do. So that's something that we need to work against in general practice. The inquiry has made a number of sensible recommendations about the way that surgeons communicate the recommended treatments to patients, giving patients time to consider their options. I think also what we really need is we need some kind of independent, non-judgmental mechanism by which we can feed back any problems that patients have reported to us, which then can be collated. And where patterns start developing, then that can be addressed. And that may not be that a specialist is doing something dangerous or nefarious, but uh, might just be an indication that the system needs to be reviewed and, and improved. Talking about improving systems, there is good news from the GP contract that got published last night. I think generally 
GPs will be reassured with this contract. The real headline, of course, is the rollback on the proposals for the PCN service specification, at least for now, much less time-consuming proposals. So um, there's not going to be the specification that we absolutely have to see everyone we have in a nursing home every two weeks. They use the phrase appropriate and consistent, which leads that leaves that to some of our own judgment. There's not going to be such a drive on medication reviews. And although that's a worthy thing to do, they have suggested that the volume that we need to undertake will be determined and limited by the, um, the clinical pharmacist capacity for the PCN. And then the other big win is the uh, additional roles that we're that we're trying to recruit into primary care are going to be fully reimbursed rather than a partial reimbursement which i think was eventually going to uh, bankrupt a lot of practices as ever the devil is in the detail and you never know as we work through the next year on this contract things may come out of the woodwork but this is far better than what was being suggested a month or two ago Now, let's come on to the latest research. And first, we're going to have a look at a paper examining the cardiovascular risk of having isolated diastolic hypertension. So I think we all accept if someone has raised blood pressure that increases your cardiovascular risk. We've always been taught that doesn't matter if it's systolic or diastolic, increased blood pressure um, or both then um, your your risk goes up. So if someone is above the threshold on either the systolic or diastolic, then crack on and, and manage them appropriately. So this new paper that published in JAMA last week was looking at a cohort of almost 10,000 US adults, average age about 50 years old, uh, that they were following up between the early 90s and 2017. This was a longitudinal study on atherosclerotic disease. So they were collecting markers on blood pressure and then cardiac events. So the researchers in this paper then wanted to compare the rates of diagnosis of isolated diastolic hypertension using two different guidelines. So one from 2003 and one from 2017 and then have a look at the rates of cardiovascular disease in these groups. Firstly, they found that the rates of diagnosis of isolated diastolic hypertension were five times higher using the 2017 guideline. Just going to show that the thresholds at which we um, define disease have reduced dramatically and the amount of treatment that people are being given and the amount of labelling of disease that people are being given has increased dramatically as well. But what was then interesting was that they showed that in those patients with isolated diastolic hypertension based around the 2017 guidelines, there was no increase in cardiovascular events. There was no increase in heart failure. There was no increase in chronic renal disease as well. So firstly, this perhaps challenges the idea about guidelines lowering the thresholds at which we define someone as as hypertensive um, and, of course, the threshold at which we start to treat people. And it also potentially challenges the very concept of isolated diastolic increases in blood pressure being important for us to manage. I don't think this as yet is strong enough for us to start changing our practice in this area, but it certainly is a a starting point for looking at this in more detail. And I think we may well uh, see more analysis of existing cohorts, existing data um, be undertaken to try and figure out whether 
we really do need to manage this group or if we mostly need to focus on raised systolic blood pressures. Now, the next paper was published very recently in the BMJ, and this was an interesting look at the role of adults who have previously had chickenpox being further exposed to chickenpox, um, new episodes in their children, and the concept that this may boost your immunity and then therefore prevent you developing shingles in later life. And this concept is one of the arguments against having a um, national immunization program for varicella. So in a number of countries around the world, like America, Canada and Australia, they routinely vaccinate their children. The fear is then that as you get older, your immunity may wane. And then if you're exposed to an index case, then you're more likely to develop serious illness. And that's one of the reasons why the WHO suggested countries should only be routinely immunising for varicella if they can keep their immunisation rate greater than 80%. So this paper was a case series of 9,500 patients with the data pulled out of UK primary care databases. And they looked at adults who over a 20-year period had been um, living with a child who had had a diagnosis of varicella. And they wanted to find out what the relative incidence of herpes zoster were in that group compared with uh, baseline times. That's all other times on those persons' record, uh, basically suggesting that's a period during which they didn't have that potential boost of immunity. So they had to make a, a range of adjustments for considering things like age of participants, the season that infection developed. But after all of their tweaking, they came to the conclusion that in the two years after exposure, you were uh, one third less likely to develop zoster. And in the 10 to 20 years after exposure, you were about a quarter less likely to develop zoster than if you'd never had any exposure before. So that sounds like quite a positive finding. And certainly if I have a kid who comes in with chickenpox, I'm likely to go and get my gran and bring her in so I can rub the child all over her. But actually in the discussion, the authors were somewhat less positive because a lot of the modelling studies for the cost effectiveness of um, varicella immunisation programmes have assumed that the boost that you get is 100% effective. And at least in this data, it seems to suggest that that may not be correct. Okay, so on to our in-depth topic, and this can only be one thing. This is coronavirus. This has been the front of the papers, the main headlines of every news outlet around the world for the last three weeks. This is a fantastic example of the natural world's ability to rapidly evolve. And just as we think that we're getting medicine in check as we're discovering cures for cancer, we've got fancy new biological therapies to sort out inflammatory diseases and the like, along comes a virus that can flat out kill us and spread around the world within weeks. So where are we at? Um, according to Public Health England data from the 6th of February, there have been 28,000 confirmed cases in China, 563 fatalities. It's now been found in over 20 countries around the world. So 260 cases diagnosed in other countries. Predominantly, it's fair to say, in travellers from China. There's been two fatalities outside of China. We've had three cases diagnosed in England so far. Those patients have been okay. 
The official name for this virus is the 2019 NCoV virus. So it comes from the family of coronaviruses, which uh, there's a whole range of coronaviruses. So some of them may cause the common cold, um, but then equally some of them may call um, SARS, so the Severe Acute Respiratory Distress distress syndrome coronaviruses that um, were around in the early 2000s that had a um, a thankfully fairly short-lived epidemic at the time. So the big question for us, assuming that you're not listening to this in China, is does it really matter to the rest of the world? And the honest answer is that no one can really tell us. There are obviously very strict regimes in place now around the world, particularly in China, particularly in Wuhan, where it developed, which are there to try and limit spread of the disease. But now that it seems fairly certain that there's direct human to human transmission and the fact that it also seems very likely that the disease can be transmitted when people are still in uh, their asymptomatic incubation period, the length of which is still somewhat uncertain, but has been speculated at around a week to 10 days or so. There is plenty of uncertainty about what's going to happen to this virus on a global scale. There have been clear negatives and positives to the Chinese government's response. And you'll see all over the news today that the first doctor that broke the story out of one of the Wuhan hospitals in China, who was looking after some of the first cases of this new disease, has very sadly died. And one of the things that he was trying to do was get this message out to the world to say that he thought that this was a new emerging serious disease and a serious problem for the world. And then he was very rapidly censored by the local Chinese government. And indeed, there's a lot of censorship that seems to be going on. So Chinese websites and discussion forums being shut down and comments deleted, which contain anything particularly negative about either the disease or the way that the government's been handling it. And of course, in these epidemic situations, what you don't want is you don't want a culture of um, fear and oppression, which is going to make people not want to discuss their symptoms. You want a culture of openness where people can say, hey, look, I've got a problem. Um, can, can I help? And of course, that's very important if you want to try and limit the spread. There have been a number of positives from the Chinese response as well. So the scientific response has been pretty impressive. The virus's genome was characterised very, very rapidly and then shared with scientists around the world. That's important to develop the diagnostic test that we need to investigate suspected cases and in due course may lead to vaccinations for the disease as well. Indeed, sequencing of that genome has revealed that it's likely that the virus developed in bats in the same way that SARS did. And of course, there was all this speculation that it developed in the Chinese fish market in central Wuhan, and that's where the spread originated from. It turns out that all seems to be a bit of a red herring. Now, two of the most important things that scientists and medics need to know is what is the reproduction number for this virus and what is the fatality rate? These are still quite uncertain. So the reproduction number is the average number of other people that an an individual with the virus will infect. And for an epidemic to um, stop, you need to have an average number of less than one case. So the numbers will gradually go down. Um, and naturally with epidemics, the reproduction number is generally higher. So it's estimated that it's between 1.8 and 3.3 for um, this new coronavirus. 
interestingly, that number will change over time. So as more people get infected, then more people will hopefully become immune or if there's a vaccine developed, or if there's a change in behaviour that can affect transmissions, such as uh, infected individuals being isolated or there being curfews in the cities, which is going on in China at the moment, then that can also reduce down this reproduction number. Then what we need to know is the fatality rate, and this is still very uncertain as well. So there's no doubt that this causes serious disease. And one report I saw suggested that about a quarter of people who um, contract the virus will develop more um, severe respiratory illness as a result of it. But the actual fatality rate has been suggested as anywhere between 2% and 14%. Now, of course, the fatality rate, you can't really work out until you know how many people are genuinely infected. And it's likely the number of confirmed cases grossly underestimates the amount of actual genuine cases out there in the world at the moment. So a lot of the time, the virus has quite mild symptoms. These patients will often, or these people will often not present to medical authorities, so they're not going to be tested. And there is estimates from scientists that there's some t- something between 10 and 40 times the number of cases out there in the world than have been currently officially confirmed. So that's potentially bad news for the spread of the disease, but it's potentially good news in terms of fatality rates because uh, it, that means that the, the fatality rate will be dramatically lower than we're seeing at the moment. And while it all still feels a bit distant because we've only seen three cases to date in the UK, and it really is the most significant problem in mainland China. The death of Dr. Li in Wuhan does demonstrate that we as medical professionals need to take this seriously and we need to protect ourselves and our staff as well as our patients. So you'll see on the Public Health England website, there's very clear information for um, how we manage suspected cases in general practice. The main thing is if we're doing telephone triage and we suspect this person may have coronavirus, then don't bring them to the practice. Contact the local uh, infectious diseases team and they will take over an organisation of care from there. If you have someone who during the course of your consultation, it becomes apparent they may be at risk of coronavirus, then the recommendation is to drop everything and get the hell out of there. Wash your hands very thoroughly and then contact the authorities. Don't let the patient leave until there is appropriate transport to take that person for further assessment. After that, everything needs to be thoroughly decontaminated and there's more guidance on how we uh, how we can do that. Now, the clinical features don't really help us make the diagnosis. So the majority of people will just have normal coryza, upper respiratory tract infection symptoms. More specifically, if uh, people have a more severe end of the spectrum of the infection, then they might have fever, cough, chest tightness, dyspnea. And of course, those patients need to go to hospital. But the main driver for suspecting the 2019 NCOV virus is, of course, travel to or from mainland China, particularly the city of Wuhan, in the last two or three weeks, or contact with someone who's um, done exactly that. And of course, in those patients, we should just have a very, very low threshold for contacting the specialist centres and getting them tested. So now the risk of coronavirus in general practice outside of China remains very, very low. But of course, we don't know how things are going to pan out over the next few weeks. So we need to be informed, we need to be vigilant, and we need to be safe for ourselves as well. 
finally, future medicine. And I guess I'm going to carry on with the theme of viruses here because uh, this is a report just published that scientists have discovered more than two and a half thousand new viruses. So that increases the number of viruses that we've characterized by around 25% or so overnight. And I think this technique is fascinating. So they take human or animal cells, they're searching their DNA and they're looking for viral DNA within that. And they are then able to effectively reconstruct a picture of the virus based around simply the DNA that they've got. So some of these new viruses are in classes that have already been discovered, but some of them are entirely new. So something like 600 are novel viruses that don't resemble anything that we've ever seen before. And a certain proportion of them uh, have been considered that they might well be dangerous. For example, they found something like a hundred of a type of virus called anelloviruses in the human blood. And whilst they haven't been yet linked to human disease, there's a whole lot of things in the body that we just don't understand. And you just wonder how much influence these viruses uh, might be having. Having said that, it's not all negative. So we don't know that these viruses aren't necessarily having a positive effect in the body, just as bacteria and fungi are also important to maintain our microbiome and uh, and our health. Viruses are probably an intrinsic part of that mix as well. So before we try and wipe them all out, we definitely need to understand better the effects that they have in the body. So that's it for the medicine today. A quick shout out for the next set of Hot Topics courses that are coming up in April. We'll be having a look at a wide range of topics, but some of the fascinating new ones, new research on lung cancer diagnosis and CT lung health checks. We'll be having a look at um, the latest on e-cigarette, diverticulitis, uh, direct-to-consumer genetic testing. I'd love to talk about that in a podcast um, at some point. Latest research on SSRIs and why sertraline may not be so good for depression, even though it helps with anxiety. And then, of course, we'll be focusing on lipids, hypertension, heart failure, acid asthma, um, HRT and the like as well. So it's going to be a jam-packed schedule. Right. Have a lovely weekend, everyone. Thank you for listening. Please do subscribe. We'll be back in two weeks with uh, with uh, another update on the latest news and information from the medical world. I'll catch you then. Take care. Bye-bye.